0: Thank you, what a great joy. I recognize that you hear folks say that often, what an honor and a joy it is. Um, Even though you hear it often, you need to know from our hearts, we mean it with every ounce of our being, to stand in this place, not because there's a holiness to this place, although how glorious is it that God has given you this facility, but it's because of what happens here, and what this represents. It's an incredible honor. And so I thank Pastor Scott. I thank you. This feels now like a second home to us, if you'll allow us to say that. Especially now that we're back on the right coast uh, in uh, in Southern California. Uh, Please pray for us as we are attempting a church revitalization at Calvary Baptist Church in Santa Barbara, a church that next year will observe its 85th anniversary in existence as a church, and yet about a year ago it almost went out of existence. And so. Uh, we are engaged in the process of trying to re-energize and, uh, by the Spirit of God, uh, see that church resurrected, revitalized, and so we need prayer, uh, we need help, and if any of you are tired of living in this heat all summer, move over to Santa Barbara and help us. We would love that. I'm, uh, I've never preached in this, in this place before, so I'm, I'm looking for a clock, and I just, I don't know, Pastor Scott doesn't care much about a clock, but I, I'm looking, oh, I see it, it's right there, all right. I found the clock so we're okay so um, thank you again for your kindness to us Uh, we come to the word today so let's ask the holy spirit to be our teacher father uh, we ask that the name of your son jesus would be magnified that the holy spirit would have free reign to work in our hearts and apply and illuminate the truths of the word that he inspired that he might apply those to our hearts and that Father, your great eternal plan of redemption and your glorious providence will be exalted this morning. Help all of us get out of the way and recognize that not only this time, but really all of our lives, all of this is about you, not about us. you be our teacher through the Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to begin to the Romans chapter 15, the 15th chapter of Romans And as you turn there, let me ask you a question. What is your comfort in life and death? What is your comfort in life and death? I think if we're honest this morning, we should all be able to acknowledge that we need comfort. There's an aspect of living in this pervasively broken world that draws us into a place of need, and we have to recognize that there will inevitably be times Maybe it's a time like that today for you where you need encouragement and comfort and hope. In the book of Job, the Bible says it this way, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, Job 5, verse 6. We need comfort. And God's Word is not silent on this reality and this provision of comfort and encouragement. We can find it in Him, and yet... It's astonishing to find people who have some kind of identification with Christianity but live and act as though there's no comfort to be had. Some of you have read the news articles over the last several weeks of minor celebrities in the Christian world who have apostatized. That's the biblical term. They have forsaken the faith. And our prayer is that that apostasy will not be the ultimate apostasy from which there is no forgiveness. We pray that God would draw them back. But these deconversions have made quite a bit of news and it's astonishing how a common theme as you read the reasons that these Christian leaders have now renounced their following of Jesus and the things which they had taught and the things which they had preached and theoretically the things which they had lived and how many times they say this, they say no one is asking the hard questions. And when I read those words, when I read people who have been in ministry and they claim that nobody in Christianity is asking the hard questions, I want to to know what world they've been living in. What color is the sky in their world, as we used to say back in my generation? To say that no one is asking the hard questions, have they not, as I have had to do, have they not helped pick out the a casket for a four-month-old who died suddenly, unexpectedly? Who is our comfort in those times? Have they not counseled couples who have been fractured by betrayal on the part of one of them and and sat in an office and, and pleaded with them to preserve and restore their marriage by God's grace? Is there not comfort in times like that? Have they not, as I have done, seen churches that are torn to pieces with division and in the middle of that heartache and that, and that despair and, and that circumstance that should never be for the body of Christ to appear divided and broken and angry with one another, haven't they sought comfort there? Haven't they prayed with a young dad who lost his job simply because he was following Jesus and he was pursuing integrity, and his boss said, that won't work for us here? Haven't they dealt with those situations? Haven't they found the need to search for comfort? And haven't they wept with those who weep, as you have done over the last few weeks with the Lundy family? Haven't they asked, why do these things happen? Where can I find encouragement? Where can I find comfort? This world is filled with heartache and trouble. And so we come to these circumstances, and we know, if we know God's Word, we know that God has revealed the source of comfort. We know that God has given us a source for encouragement. We find a place of strength. We find that our God works well, and our God works with clarity, and our God works in ways that though we might not understand in the moment, we can trust in the long term. How do we know that? We know it from His Word. Look with me in Romans 15. Romans 15, look at verse 4. Romans 15, 4, the Word of God says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have, what's the word? Hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a great promise there. Paul writing to the Romans, anticipating that any life that's really given over to following Jesus will have times of trouble and will have times of persecution. We live in a fallen world. We still struggle with our own sinful flesh. Others will mistreat us because we chase after Jesus. And in all of those circumstances, Paul wants his readers to know that there is a source for encouragement. And what does he point them to? He points them to what he calls the Scriptures. And what would the Roman believers have understood that? Both the Jews and the Gentiles that had been saved and and were following Jesus in the Roman church, they would have understood that primarily at that time to be what you and I call the Old Testament. So there is something in the Old Testament. We know there's more than just something. There is something in the Old Testament which gives us a ground for comfort, which gives us a place in which we can find this encouragement of the Scriptures if we pay attention to it and we apply it to our lives, it will give us a sense of endurance. And that's what I'd like to do with you this morning. What I'm asking you to do is to go back with me into the Older Testament, and I want us to just look at two books that are found together near the middle of the Old Testament. And we're going to take just a 30,000-foot view of those two books, but in doing so, I want to remind you that God, who sometimes it appears is not at work. God is always at work. And God's people through the centuries, back to the time of Christ and even before that, in the time in which God was working with his people Israel, in all of these times, God has proven that he is faithful, even though at any given moment, appearances might have been deceiving. You might have been misled by looking at even some of the examples we're going to see this morning from the books of Esther, and the books of Job. Turn with me, first of all, to Esther in the Old Testament. And here's what I want you to see this morning. Esther details the deliverance of God's people through his hidden providences. Esther details the deliverance of Israel, the people of God, through providences, through his working in all circumstances, even though that working might be hidden to the eyes of the people who watched for it. Now, I don't know how many of you know the story of the book of Esther, so I'm going to give you just the broadest overview, and perhaps what might be helpful for you is, as a result of this message this week, spend some time reading through Esther and Job and thinking through these issues of of the Apostle Paul telling the Romans that from the Scriptures we can find the source for our comfort and our hope and our encouragement and our endurance because if you're not in a place now today where you need endurance you will be in that place sooner or later right and so let's think this morning about esther and then also about job what's happening in esther the issue is that there's a danger here of the total elimination of god's people israel and if god's people israel were all eliminated then the covenant promises of god would have not come true if, let me put it very simply if the plot that Esther deals with the story of Esther the plot that it reveals if that plot had been successful and the and the Jews had been eliminated the promises that culminated in Jesus Christ would have never come true that's what's happening in the book of Esther it's at a time in Israel's history where they were vulnerable it's in the beginning of the return from the exile and they had no army, no king, no prophets, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices. The people were exposed. They were vulnerable. And what we find in Esther is that they were attacked. And what I want you to see is that Esther, is a, it, it, it's a kind of Cinderella story. In fact, it, it's more than that. It, it has the drama of a, of a Mission Impossible sequel without all of the technology, but still The twists and turns of this story are astonishing. And if you've read the story, if you know it, you know that's the case. What you find is there's a a young Jewish girl who's guided by her cunning older relative. And through apparently random circumstance, she's elevated to be the queen of Persia. But in the middle of all that, there's a plot to destroy all of the Jews in all the empire and that plot is revealed it's uncovered this is really a prototype of the Holocaust this is the kind of thing that's been attempted against the Jewish people all through history and in the story of Esther that plot is revealed and astonishingly even though she didn't really have the political power Esther finds herself in a position where she can plead for the deliverance of her people I would say her hidden people because she had not made it known that she was a Jew And at the same time all of this is going on, there are random circumstances that reveal the evil heart of the plotter, the one who's trying to take the lives of the Jewish people. And what happens? You know the climax of the story. The plotter ends up being hanged on the gallows that he had built for the leader of the Jewish people. He dies on the gallows that he built. Now here's what's stunning about this Old Testament narrative. What's surprising, you might not expect it, Is that the name of the God of Israel is not mentioned in the book of Esther? The name Yahweh, a reference to the Almighty God, not referred to. He's not prayed to. The, the, The recorder of the narrative of Esther doesn't give him credit, he's not referenced. It's as though if you were to read the narrative and not understand the flow of biblical history, you would think that this was just a secular story. But because it's in the Word of God, because these are the people of God, we read it with a a lens that understands God's purposes. God is creator and God is who has ordained all things, and God who works through all things. And so we come to the book of Esther, and even though God isn't even referred to, we recognize that somehow God is at work through all of this, delivering his people. The truth of the matter is, if you're going to be really honest about it, watch it this week. Esther and Mordecai, though ultimately they are unquestionably brave, they behave in ways that likely lack some level of pure integrity. There are steps that they take that that show that they don't have full courage. There are even some things they do that lack open faith. And yet, here's the point. Despite their shortcomings, and this is the reason that people have cherished the book of Esther for centuries, what we find here is that God was at work behind the scenes. And it is hinted at in the book, though not specifically spelled out. For example, Go with me to chapter 9 of Esther and look with me just briefly at verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. This is at the end of the story after the Jews have been delivered and their enemies have been conquered. Esther, chapter 9, verse 22 It says, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now once again, there's no reference there to the God of Israel, but we know these are the people of God. We know that they have a background, a history of recognizing that the God of creation was the one who called their father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob And therefore, there was this sense of confidence that God was at work. Go backward with me. Turn left in your Bible, as we say sometimes. Go to chapter 8 and look at verse 5. Esther 8, verse 5. Look at what happens at the moment, the, the big crisis moment of the event. Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the providences of the king. Do you see that kind of courage? Now, as you're reading through the story, here's a question that begins to pop up Isn't this a coincidence? I mean this is an amazing coincidence that this happened and then that this happened and then that this happened but we know there are no coincidences when God is at work look back with me to chapter four for a moment look in verse number 14 this is the passage that we think of most when we think of the book of Esther chapter 4 verse 14 this is Mordecai speaking to uh, his niece Esther as she has found her place in a place of possible influence Look at what he says, verse 14, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai, for all of his weaknesses, had a confidence that even if Esther failed, the God of Israel was still going to somehow protect his people and deliver his people. Because he had a confidence that behind the scenes, God was at work. And all of this just happened. Pastor Mark Dever talks about this, the coincidences of the book of Esther. Listen to what he says. He says, Esther just happens to be Jewish. She just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot against the king's life the report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman, the enemy of the people of God, just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak, but then she happens to put off her request for another day. Her deferral of a day just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They, in turn, just happen to encourage Haman to build a scaffold and gallows immediately. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. It just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not command a moment's sleep, and he just happened to have a look at the book brought to him and in that book, it was recounted to him Mordecai's deliverance. And so he happened to ask Mordecai whether he had been rewarded for saving the life of the king, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. Later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman is with Esther and he happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that is misconstrued as a sexual assault. The gallows Haman built for Mordecai just happened to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. Hey, but it's all coincidence, right? No. God was setting them up. It didn't just happen now what's this have to do with you and me do you ever wonder if god has forgotten us do you ever wonder if he's still working do you ever wonder how can we know here's what i want you to see this morning about the book of esther what the book of esther shows us is that god is powerfully present god is powerfully present even when he seems seems most strikingly absent. God is powerfully present and working, even when from all our experiences, with all of our senses, we can't see his working. He feels absent, and it's striking to us, just like it is in the book of Esther. How can you have a whole book in the Old Testament that doesn't even refer to God? There's a striking absence there. Oh, but we know that God was still at work. And it's the same In your life and in my life god is powerfully present even when he seems most strikingly absent one of the great challenges is that we look for the wrong kinds of evidences don't we we're wondering why a miracle doesn't show up when we pray we're looking for signs in the heavens or we're listening for voices in the dark You say, well, how can you really know that God is with me? You don't know anything about my problem. You don't know anything about my circumstance. You might say to me today, you don't know anything about my heartache. How can I find comfort? How can I know that God is powerfully present because he's strikingly absent in my life right now? If you were honest, you might say that. Well, I want you to remember this morning. When Jesus came, he was given a name. You remember in Matthew chapter 1? The name was Emmanuel. And then that name was translated, it means what? God with us. Do you believe that God is present? He's present with us in the gospel. He's present with us through the Holy Spirit. He's present with us through the working of Jesus, from which we, through whom we find forgiveness for our sins, through whom we find our redemption. This is the promise of God with us. You know if i had time this morning i'd take you to matthew 28 because there's an astonishing story there where jesus is is it's after his crucifixion and resurrection matthew 28 he's almost ascending into heaven and this is what he says to his disciples he says i will never leave you or forsake you and the next thing he does is leave have you ever thought about that i will never leave you or forsake you and then he leaves But he had prepared them and he had promised them the presence of the Deliverer, another Comforter, one like him, the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit and through the Word and through the community of faith, God is still here and God is working. It is God's never-ending, all-encompassing sovereignty over all things and you can have confidence that he is powerfully present even when in your heart and in your emotions you feel like he is strikingly absent. Have you gone through this kind of time of God's apparent absence, what they call the silence of heaven? Are you in that time now? I'm here to tell you through the power of the Holy Spirit and what God has done for us in the gospel, God has never forsaken you despite the circumstances you might find yourself. And that's the message of the book of Esther. God is powerfully present even when he seems most strikingly absent. Esther's not the only account. Go with me one more book. Go to the book of Job. Turn your, in your Bibles to the book of Job, and you know this story as well. The book of Job details the suffering of God's servant for God's hidden purposes. The suffering of God's servant for purposes of God that are hidden from Job and from those around him. You know the story. The issue, as opposed to Esther, where the entire nation was in danger, this is the suffering of one godly man. Job probably lived in the patriarchal period, the the ages just before likely Abraham. Between Babel and Abraham seems to be the most likely time frame for Job. He was a wealthy, godly, perplexed man. And you know his story. He experienced unspeakable loss, incredible suffering, sudden crushing loss, one writer calls it. And it's almost too painful to recount. I'm here this week, as Blake and Becker are gone, caring for grandchildren, and when you you have children, it's one thing when you have grandchildren, you just forget all about what it was like to have kids because the grandkids are so much better, right? And yet when I read the story of Job and what he suffered, it's uncomfortable for me it's painful to me i i i don't want to reread those details this is the kind of loss he experienced and what happened his wife gave him no comfort his three biblical counselors came along and they told him it was his fault there was another younger wiser friend who reorients the debate to god and god's purposes And then God steps in. And if you read through the book of Job, it's a long book. There's a lot of so-called wisdom that flies back and forth. And you get to the end of the book, and finally God speaks. And as you read, if if you're reading it for the first time, you're thinking, finally, God's going to reveal the answer. And you know what God does? He doesn't give any substantial answer at all. He doesn't tell Job why. He He doesn't explain to Job all of the reasonings. All he essentially says is this. When God finally speaks... God says, Job, you better trust me. That's not the answer I'm looking for when my life has fallen apart. That's not the answer I'm looking for when it seems like everything is unfair. It seems like I've been faithful and yet everything is off the rails and the roof is caving in and I'm looking for answers. And God's response to Job is, trust me, Job. Trust me. What's astonishing about the book, if you just think of it on the terms of the Scripture, is that we, the readers, know what's happening. But no one in the story ever really does. I mean, God, in His, in his powerful creativity and through the inerrancy of Scripture, He reveals to us what's going on behind the scenes. But the people who are the victims of this heartache, they never really know. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. And here's what God is doing. Here's what God is doing with Job. God is using Job's life and suffering to demonstrate Job's love for God. And do you understand that that's exactly what God delights to do? In fact, do you understand that that's what heaven will be? Paul in the first chapter of Ephesians says that we are all, in a sense, we are trophies of God's grace. And that what God has done is he has saved rebels like us because all through eternity, people, you and and, and I, people who we would have gone our own way all through eternity, God will be able to hold us up and say, these were those who would have gone their own way, who have, would have rejected my name. There were already rebels against my will, and I have redeemed them through my Son for the sake of my glory. That's what God loves to do. And what God does in the book of Job is he puts on display the love of Job, and he shows his great glory in it. And the reply that God gives to Job in the midst of his pain is just a call to trust him. And so that's the reason James, in James 5, he refers to Job, and yet, once again, there's not an incredible amount of peace to this. In fact, we talk about Job's patience, the patience of Job. You've heard that phrase. But Job really doesn't show a lot of patience. But here's what he does show. He shows steadfastness. He shows endurance. And that's what James points out in James chapter 5. And he links Job's willingness to be steadfast to the fact that the God he trusted in, he believed that God was nevertheless a God of mercy and a God of compassion. So we see this in the book of Job. For example, look with me in chapter 2, look at verse 10, as Job's life literally has been destroyed, except that he's still breathing breath. When you come to chapter 2, you look at verse 10, and this is what Job says to his wife as she was so unencouraging. Job 2.10 says, But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then his three friends show up. And his three friends evidently knew the concepts of the book of Proverbs because they basically said, Job, if your life has gone this bad, you must be disobedient. And there's a younger one that shows up, and he gives better counsel. But God finally speaks. Look, go over to chapter 42 and look at what God says. When God finally does show up, when God finally does speak, when God reveals himself, look at what happens after God has spoken. We come to chapter 42. And it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." which all is a way of saying, God, no matter what happens, I will trust you. What we find in Job is that God is purposefully present even when he seems most painfully absent. God is purposefully present even when he seems most painfully absent. And once again, Where does that apply to our lives? Turn with me back to Romans. and Look in the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 8. God calls us to trust Him. Under the old covenant, God called the people of Israel, God called Job in his faith to trust Him even though He couldn't see the reasons, even though he couldn't see the end. God essentially was saying, you know me enough to know that I'm a trustworthy God. And with the people in the story of Esther, God was powerfully present even when he seemed strikingly absent. And with Job, he was purposefully present even when he seemed painfully absent. And we read about this in the book of Romans chapter 8. Look at it with me. You know the passage. We we could deal with the whole text, but we don't have time. But look, for example, in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then Paul, the, the concept of being called according to God's purpose, drives Paul into recognizing this great process of redemption. The, the, the order of redemption, the theologians call it. So beginning in verse 29, notice he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then he says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, stop. Here's what happens. We read if God is for us, and we interpret that as the American dream. We think we ought to be comfortable. We ought to be wealthy. We ought to never have any trouble. Things ought to go our way. We're obedient. We ought to to see all of the blessings that are promised to obedient people. But then you go to the Scripture, and you see the story of God working especially in the life of Job and you find that he was a faithful man and his life fell apart and it was part of God's ordaining purposes in his life. And you have to recognize that there must be something else going on here than just the daily comfort of my life being the ultimate goal and good. And so it is for God's people. So what does it say? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then watch this reasoning. And I when you hear a preacher say this, I know some of you probably roll your eyes, but this may be to me the most glorious verse in all of God's Word. Where he says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you, do you recognize the reasoning The reasoning is, when you see what God has done for rebels like you and me, you can trust God to work out the details of our lives. Even though the circumstances might not be filled in the way we would want them to be, we can still trust God because He has proven His faithfulness on a rugged Roman cross. And the truth is, if we don't believe that, then we're lost in our suffering anyway. And then he goes on, he, be, because he, Paul is not unrealistic. Th- this is the one who was shipwrecked. Remember, he was beaten with rods. He was beaten with the cat and nine tails. He was forsaken by some of his dearest friends. This is Paul. He, he's not proposing and suggesting that we're going to have the glorious comfort of daily life the way that we all think we ought to have, the way we think we're so treated with injustice when we don't experience. That's not in view here. Notice what he says. He, he anticipates the fact that there are all of these heartaches and all of these problems. He says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, in this world, there are plenty to condemn. But look at what he says. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who, us? who shall separate us from the love of God? And then he lists it. And when he begins to list, you recognize in his mind, evidently, he's been doing his Bible reading, in the book of Job, right? Because look at it. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, how's this for a prosperity gospel? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But wait, go back to 32. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's what we cling to. And therefore, in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is purposefully present even when he seems painfully absent, and he's powerfully present even when his absence is striking to us. And how can we be certain, your takeaway today? We can be certain because of the cross. That's what this text is telling us. And implicitly, don't misunderstand me, without knowing the details, implicitly, That's what Mordecai and Esther were to understand. That's what Job was to understand. They couldn't have explained all of the ins and outs of the incarnation and the the crucifixion, but they understood that the God, the covenant God, would cover their sins, and if he was willing to cover the sins of black-hearted rebels like them, he can be trusted to carry them through according to his purposes. Now the question is, do we believe this? God was going to protect the nation of Israel in the story of Esther because he was in the process of providing a Redeemer. God was going to provide for Job because Job was one of his own. God was going to bring him through. And you remember what Job says in Job 19? Listen to it. Don't turn there, but listen. Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And mustn't that have sounded like folly to the people around him? And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And Job would tell us today, that's what you count on. God gives good gifts and I recognize this morning I'm preaching this message to people. Many of you are overwhelmed with God's good gifts and thank him and praise him for that. But you and I both recognize that sooner or later in this life, we will go through our heartache. There will be times of heartbreak. There will be times of loss. There will be times of disappointment, times of betrayal. And when we go through those times, we must remember that even though God is strikingly absent, He is still there in power. And even though He's painfully absent from appearances, He's still working according to His purposes. Christians all through the centuries have struggled with this. The great Heidelberg Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, the first question addresses these issues, and with this I close. The question is this, what is my only comfort in life and death? The answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me to eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on To live for him. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's the cross. It's the gospel. It's the promise implicit to Esther, implicit to Job, explicit to Paul after he had recognized the glory of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did and who he was. The promise is good for us today in the Central Valley in 2019. That our God, our only comfort in life and death, is that our God has saved rebels like us. And if he has saved us freely, he will give us all things in Christ Jesus. That is our hope and comfort. Would you pray with me? I wonder if just before I pray, as your heads are bowed, in the quietness of this moment, I thank you for your kind attention. I wonder if I could ask you, some of you might be new to this church. Maybe you're new to church altogether. Maybe this is all new. I'd love to pray for you. And I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand, and we don't not going to have an altar call there will be people here after the service who are willing to pray with you and encourage you and counsel you but i want you to know if you're new to this church maybe you've never heard this kind of preaching with such a high view of god's purposes or maybe you've never heard preaching before maybe you don't really know this thing about the gospel maybe you know christians talk about the cross but you don't really get what all of that's about i want to pray for you especially this morning And I'm going to pray in a moment that God, through his Holy Spirit, will move in your heart and life in such a way that you cannot ignore it. That's going to be my prayer. And then I'm also going to pray for the folks in this church this morning, this church building, and your heart is broken. Maybe it's broken because of a prodigal family member. Maybe it's broken because of a frayed marriage. Maybe it's broken because of just ongoing depression and discouragement. I don't know the circumstances, but God does. And if you are a forgiven follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you today. There may be something you need to deal with. There may be something you need to process in your life there might be a place of repentance for you but overall this is what i want to tell you if you are one of god's children you can have absolute confidence that god is working even though he might appear absent that god is at work in your circumstances and you can find encouragement in that if i had the opportunity to look brent and Aaron in the eye this morning, I could say the same thing to them and not be afraid that it was cheap preaching because it's the experience of believers from Job, from Esther's experience, all the way back to Abraham. This is the kindness of our God. So let me pray for you this morning. Father, there are some here, I don't know them, but there are some here undoubtedly who are either new to church or they're returning to church after many years or they're trying a new church. And maybe they've heard a sermon this morning that exalts the sovereignty of God in a way that they don't recognize. Maybe it sounds new to them. That even in our darkest moments, Father, you are still in control, ordaining all things for your eternal purposes. And maybe, Lord, they've never heard the story of the gospel That Christians can trust you in those difficult times because of what you've done for us. Rebels all what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, your Son. I pray for those who are here this morning in those circumstances that you would, through your Holy Spirit, grip them in their hearts, in their minds. Grip their souls in such a way that they can't shake it. Help them not to ignore the working of the Holy Spirit. But do a work in their hearts and lives today that is unmistakable and that is eternal in its nature. And then, Father, I intercede this morning for the heartbroken. There may be people like Job sitting in this room today. There may be embittered people like Job's wife, who looks at the way the circumstances of their life has turned out, male or female. They look at the circumstances and they are embittered and angry. Maybe there are just people who are discouraged. Maybe there are people like Esther and Mordecai that are tempted to hide their faith. Maybe there are people like the Jews that are fearful that they cannot go another day or week or month without being overwhelmed. And Father, I pray for those of us that are in your family. We've experienced your forgiveness. We've been regenerated by your Spirit. And that Holy Spirit dwells within us. I pray that we would have a fresh sense of comfort and hope an encouragement of the scriptures this morning. And we can say with confidence that even when it might appear that you are absent, you are powerfully and purposefully present in our lives. God, give this great church that confidence as they move toward the future to try to impact this region with the life-changing gospel of Jesus. Do this work not because we're worthy of it, Not because we've been faithful, but we ask that in your kindness you would do this work according to your mercy and grace, for we are dependent upon it every single day. And we thank you that despite a world that appears to be careening out of control, that you have proven to us on the cross of Calvary how much you care for us, And we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We cling to that promise and give you praise for it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.